Last week we did a, 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 we're starting a new series. We kind of started it last week because the two tie in together. And what we are basically going into is the holidays, right? We, we, this time of year is complete and utter chaos. It is like people are nuts. You go to the mall this time of year. I don't know why, but you do, and you feel like you're a herd of cattle going through pens. It's, it's insane. I avoid malls. Well, in general, I try to avoid malls, period, but especially this time of year. You can't find a place to park. Everybody's grumpy, right? I mean, it's just like this is the season of, of giving and joy, and yet everybody's cranky. Why is everybody so cranky? Or, or even in, like around Thanksgiving, go to the grocery store the day before Thanksgiving or the day before Christmas. It is a zoo. It's a madhouse. People are fighting over the last can of yams. I mean, it's like get a life, folks. You know, maybe plan ahead. I don't know. But this is the time of year we're in. And so last week we started talking about thankfulness and why it is so crucial of understanding what thankfulness truly is. Because the one thing, and I, and I told you this last week, is that when you are thankful for something, there's an underlying person or object that you are thankful to. You cannot avoid it. And that cracks me up because we have a world that's trying to take God out of everything, at least in this country, trying to remove God from the equation. And yet simply in celebrating Thanksgiving is implying a superior, a superior being of some sort that we are thankful to. You cannot be thankful to oxygen and be thankful to the trees. It's not possible. Why? Because they are just a result of the one who made the trees. And God's setting everything in order. So we're thankful to something. But when we go past that, and we look at this time of year, we in this country especially do not have an appreciation for Christmas the way that we should. We look at it as a time of family getting together. It's a time of giving. It's a time of gifts. And you always hear it's better to give than to receive, which is a good thing. It is better to give than to receive. And it's good to get together with family, but is that what we're celebrating? Or are we truly celebrating the birth of our Savior? And the, to be honest, I mean, you really think about it, most of us are celebrating the fact that we get together and the time together, the time off of work and whatnot. We're truly not devoted to the birth of our Savior. And part of it is, is because all of us have been brought up after the Savior's been here. And He's already provided the free gift of salvation. He's already given it to us. And... Prior to this, prior to him coming, these people were looking forward to this event. They kept waiting and waiting. In fact, they're still waiting and waiting. The Israelites still are waiting on the Messiah to come every couple of years. They keep thinking, I think this is the guy, some new rabbi that comes up. This is probably him. And then he dies and he doesn't come back. And they're like, well, maybe that wasn't him. They don't know. They're still looking because he's already come and they've missed it. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on Christ this year. But I want you to understand your Bible more than anything in this world. Ben Franklin, you've heard the saying that, uh, that you should be a jack of all trades but master of none. I'm sure we've all heard it, if not said it. I've said that. That's not actually the quote. It came from Ben Franklin. He said we should be a jack of all trades but a master of one. And the one that he was referring to is we need to know our Bibles. We should be masterful and the use of Scripture. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks, and this is going to go beyond Christmas, is that we are going to go and find the Messiah in the Old Testament. We are going to examine it. We're going to see it. It will give you appreciation for your Bible like you've never had before. I'm excited to teach this. This is the stuff that really gets me going because we have such a superficial understanding of our Bible. We know that it's 66 books. We know that it's been written by over 40 authors over a 1500 year span and we say those things but that never sinks in. How impossible that is to have everything line up the way it has if man was in control of this. 
This is a God thing. And so we're going to look at that. And so I was actually planning on doing something a little different today. Because what happens when we talk about the Messiah in the Old Testament, what do we always go to? Prophecy, right? We look at prophecy, and I feel like prophecy has been said and taught a hundred thousand times, and everybody in here has heard it, and it was Thursday morning that I'm praying and I'm getting ready and all of this, and the Lord said, I want you to teach some of the prophecy. And I'm like, okay, because you know what? I take for granted that assume that everybody's already heard this stuff before. So we're not going to do this. So if you've heard it, great. It's refresher. It's never bad to go back and look at it again. And if you haven't, this will be new for you. But it's important. Now, this is actually a lot of the stuff that the, if you read the newspaper article that I wrote this week, this is a lot that's come from there. But we're going to expand upon it a little bit. But when we look at this time of year, and as Christmas gift exchanges are about to take place and all of this stuff, the birth of Christ kind of gets pushed to the side. I mean, we, we pretend like that's the big deal to us, but that's just what we're doing. We're pretending because it's really not. And because we don't see it the way we should. We have a Western mindset filter that everything goes through. And so we assume everything in the Bible uh, should be filtered through this, and it shouldn't. Because while the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. And so we need to understand that as we go forward. But the Old Testament has tons and tons and tons of prophecies about Christ. As a matter of fact, there's no way we could go through them all today. There's over 300 of them. We're going to look at a small handful. But again, what I want you to see is just the appreciation of what the Old Testament is and how God did this. And so the first prophecy that we're going to look at is that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. This is important. This was made, this prophecy was given by Jacob. And it was somewhere around 1400 B.C. How do we know that? Because they can see the early writings and they have been able to make a chronology of how these things took place. This isn't abstract numbers pulled out of the air. They can see the time in which these people lived and go back and get a, a close estimate to where this would have taken place. But the fact that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, you see this in Genesis 49 and verse 10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nation is his. So what happens is we believe that it, Jesus is going to establish this everlasting kingdom, and of course that he will. But you can actually trace his ancestry all the way back, that he was a son of Judah, from, and Luke 3 is where you see this, and of course in Matthew 1. And what I love about Luke 3, and this is one of my favorite things, because it was just a couple years ago that I just got this, I've read this passage, but go and read the genealogies. And as it's going through Christ, it's got the son of this, the son of that, and then it gets to the son of Adam, the son of God. As in, what does John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and nothing was made that without Him, and all of this stuff is going on about that. He predated Adam, and here's what it says. It's Adam and the Son of God prior to that. I never picked up on that before until just a couple of years ago. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit works in those ways. You can read the same passage a hundred times. So that's one, but that's not one we talk about often, because why do we care what tribe he comes from? We don't. really doesn't matter. We just care that he came. But again, this is just a fulfillment of one more thing that, that proves Christ. The next one would be the Messiah would appear after the Jews returned to Israel. This comes from Jeremiah, and it was between 626 and 586 B.C. And it was fulfilled in Jesus' ministry that he was here on earth, and it will be fulfilled again in the end times. But you see this in Jeremiah 23. Verses 3 through 6, and I'm going to go kind of quick, so that's why I put those up there, so you can just quickly jot them down if you're taking notes. I am going to try to go a little slower than normal. I know I talk fast. 
Jeremiah 23, verses 3 through 6. It says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. We've seen this once. We're going to see it again. Now, this is part of it. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later. But this is the Messiah that they were looking for the first time. The ruling king. They weren't looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for a ruling king. Another one, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Where he'd be born. This came from Micah. It was predicted somewhere between 750 and 686 B.C. And this is important. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from, old, from of old, from ancient times. Now to be fair about this, there is a disagreement. In regarding the translation here, because some say the reference to Bethlehem is simply a reference to the bloodline of King David. But that really doesn't make any difference. Now, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. It's one of those things where let's make the Bible as complicated as we can so that everybody can understand it, and we have to disagree about something. And a lot of that comes through is research and selling books, to be honest. There's a lot of times that people will complicate a very simple message and because there's a financial background or backing going behind it. But no matter what, however you look at this, Jesus meets both of the criteria no matter what's going on. He is a descendant of King David and he was born in Bethlehem. Now why is this such a big deal? Because in prophecy, things are always looking forward. God is predicting what is going to happen in the future. But what's the big deal? Is a person has no control over where they're born. None whatsoever. You can control a lot of things. I mean, you can control the way you die in, in some regards. You know, if somebody came up and said, you know, prophesied over you, you're going to die in a car wreck. You could make that happen. Hypothetically, be stupid, but you certainly could. But you cannot control where you're born. And that is one that makes the atheists go nuts because there's no way that they can deny it. They have the proof in the writings that were way before Christ ever came of where he'd be born. And why Bethlehem? A small, little, tiny, insignificant town that means nothing. Why not some of the bigger cities that were around there? Why this little minuscule town? Because God has a plan and it's all about him. How about the next one? The Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. The Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah predicted this, and that this messenger would precede the Messiah and he would proclaim his coming. Now, who are we talking about? John the Baptist, right? This was made between 701 and 681 BC, somewhere, somewhere in that reign. It's Isaiah 40 in verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now we believe that this passage foreshadowed the life of John the Baptist. And, and, and he played a very important role in the groundwork of the Messiah coming. Because 
It's, it's almost like the, the, the previews to a movie announcing what is coming up. What are they doing? They're whetting your appetite to get you to come back. It's the same thing here. The Messiah is coming. He'll be here soon. He'll reveal himself soon. And then, of course, when we see when he goes to be baptized, we see John. That's the guy. Him right there. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. And even the Lord confirmed that with the, his baptism when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. It, it's powerful. Another one, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This came from Zechariah, and this one is weird, because who cares, right? Somewhere between 520 and 518 B.C., it's Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you see this fulfilled in Luke 19. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. What difference does that make? Again, some of these are so obscure, but this is one that you could kind of control. Again, you, couldn't, you can't control where you're born. You could control this. But the thing is, is that these guys would have to be very diligent about knowing their scripture in order to fake this. In other words, they'd have to go back and line all this stuff. Okay, let's go. And this is not just a small passage. This isn't three chapters in a book. This is spread out through all of these scrolls. They would have to go through, oh, he's got to do this. Oh, now he's got to go ride the donkey. Now he's got to do whatever. You know, again, these all just point to the coming Messiah. The next one, the Messiah would suffer and be rejected. Now, this is one that they struggle with. The Israelites struggle with, the Jewish folks. This was made by Isaiah between 701 and 681 B.C. And this is a very familiar passage. Isaiah 53.3, it's very familiar. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now some claim that this isn't referring to the Messiah. And this is what I was talking about. But the suffering servant was Israel. They believe this. This is why the apostles never understood what Jesus kept saying, that, that he's going to have to die, he's going to be raised again, all of that. That's why there was so much confusion, because they believed that they were that, and that when the Messiah came, he was going to set up his kingdom, he was going to reign forever. And this is why they missed it. And this, that makes you understand a lot of what was going on in the mindsets of these people. A lot of rabbis, especially there's one that's called Mosh al-Shikah, however you say that, but he was a 7th century, um, 17th century, excuse me, uh, rabbi that was there. And he said, and this is what he said, Our rabbis with one voice accept and affirm the opinion that the prophet is speaking of the King Messiah, and we shall ourselves also adhere to the same view. This wasn't all that long ago, several hundred years ago, but back when he was here, when Jesus was here, that's what they were expecting. What's funny is this rabbi never did accept Jesus as the Messiah. They couldn't look back and see it, but they believed that this was referring to him. So that's just another one. One more. The Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. This is from Zechariah. It was written between 520 and 518 B.C. It's in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So you see this in Matthew 26, that he, Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver. Again, if this is something they're setting up, it's with absolute 
amazement because there's no way you're going to get all these things right. Not only that he took the 30 pieces of silver, but that he threw them in the temple afterwards because he went on to kill himself. I mean, it was a pretty bad deal. But again, we're just seeing all of these things that they should have seen coming. They should have picked up on and they didn't. And we'll see why here in a minute. The next one, the Messiah would be silent before his accusers. The Messiah would be silent before his accuser. This was predicted by Isaiah in, between 701 and 681 B.C. It's in Isaiah 53, 7. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah in chapter 53 writes about the servant of God. And it's in Matthew 27 that you see that Jesus was falsely accused. But he never defended himself. He never said these guys are wrong. They're lying. They're making all of this stuff up. That's not human nature. Jesus was innocent. Right? He did not deserve the death that he took. Now this was God's plan. But it's not like he was guilty of something and deserved what was coming. There's not one of us here that in some capacity or another would not stand up and say, no, they're wrong. They're lying. They're making it up. Again, it's these little nuances that make our scriptures so strong. These little things that we see about these prophecies. The next one, the Messiah would be wounded, whipped, and crucified. The Messiah would be wounded, whipped, and crucified. Again, this is by Isaiah in about that same time phrase, 701 to 681 B.C. This is just backing up two verses in Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus was crucified for our sins. And it was even though he was sinless. He was innocent. He didn't deserve it. And the ultimate sacrifice that he gave, he redeemed us. And there's so much prophetic stuff going on in this that I don't want to get into today. But I mean, it's just, we need to understand this and we need to study this stuff because they're, they're being very specific about it. Now, I don't know exactly what the practice of the day was, but there's no mention of the two thieves that were with him going through the torture that Jesus went through. It just simply says that they were crucified. Now, I'm sure sometimes this happened, but I would venture to guess not every time. I don't know for sure, but it's just very specific. And then another one, this is one by King David, that the Messiah would suffer at the crucifixion. You see this in Psalm 22. And you see it in several different places. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? 22, verse 7, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me and a band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, people stare and gloat over me. In verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So why did Jesus, when he's on the cross, say, my God, my God? Why have you forsaken me? What's he doing? He's fulfilling prophecy. Psalm 22. This is one that we don't often pick up on because there's so many different parts in here. But it's according to Jewish tradition that King David wrote this about a thousand years prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And there are so many parallels between Psalm 22 and what happened. They cast lots for his clothes. This wasn't a rich man. Why are they doing that? What is so significant? It's not like he wore the finest clothing. Why are they doing that? Again, just prophecy being fulfilled time and time again. The next one, the Messiah would be crucified. This comes from Isaiah again. Same time frame, 701 to 681 B.C. And it's regarding the specific circumstance of the crucifixion of the Messiah. How did they know, how did Isaiah know, that there would be two bad guys next to Jesus who's innocent? You see it in 50, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. It says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressions. Transgressors, excuse me. And this is recorded in the book of Matthew. It says, Jesus, though sinless, was numbered with the transgressors. It uses those specific words. He was crucified before two criminals. He had two of them, on, one on each side. And again, these are things that we don't, they weren't seeing. They weren't picking up on. They weren't properly prepared to see the Messiah coming. Last one, and then we'll move on to a different part of this, but the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. The Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. This again is Isaiah 53, but this is verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so you see all of these prophecies, right? We just went quickly through. There's, there's, there's a lot more. And it's a good exercise to go home and kind of review these and study these because what does this do? It should strengthen your faith. I mean, if we're all just being completely honest, there are things that we doubt about Scripture because if we didn't doubt anything in Scripture, we would act and talk a lot different. But we do. But these should just one time and time again fulfill this. But why did they miss it? Why did they not see him as for who he was? You know, they spend their entire life studying Torah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. They had the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament because that's what a lot of them uh, read and talked and all that kind of stuff then. And so why can they not see this? It's because they're not looking for it. You see, they have been taught wrong. They've been taught by their church leaders, if you will, that here's what this means. But they never examined it for themselves. They never looked at it. There's so many prophecies about Jesus. And to us, they're pretty stinking obvious. It's like, how did you not see this? How did you not put this together? How on earth did you miss this? The title of the series that we're in is called The Emmaus Road. Now, for some of you, that probably is like, oh, I know what that is. And for some of you, like, I have no idea what that is. What does that mean? Well, let's look at that. Luke 24 is where we're going. Luke 24, we're going to start in verse 13. This is Jesus right after He'd been crucified. He'd been raised from the dead. Okay? In that, that time frame, that 40 days that He was back on earth. Luke 24, starting in verse 13, says, Now behold, two of them... We're traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, which means it's not very far from home. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. What are they talking about? They're talking about the things that just happened the prior three or four days. 
So it was while they conversed in reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? I think Jesus really doesn't know what's going on. Of course he does. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happen there in these days? In other words, where have you been? How do you not know what's going on? It'd be like our world without Facebook. How would we know what everybody ate for dinner without Facebook? We wouldn't know. We need it. Verse 19, And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Let's stop there for a second. They're hoping. Oh man, we were hoping that he was the guy. We didn't know for sure. We're really hoping, but it's the third day and... and he ain't here. So obviously he was wrong. We were wrong. Verse 23. When they did not... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Verse 22. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they have also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Didn't see him. They, 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 you know, they were all there's hope, and yet he wasn't there. They didn't know what was going on. Verse 25, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. What's he saying? He went back to the writings of Moses, which would be the first five books of the Old Testament and all the prophets, which is pretty much everything else, and began to do what we just did, looking at the prophecies. But he took it past that. Verse 28, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, and that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, then their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon." And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the road to Emmaus. It was where they were going, where they were at. They're walking along. And Jesus, after everything that's happened, after all the prophecies and, and whatnot, they still didn't recognize him. But what did he do? He opened the scriptures. Let me show you who I am. And so, beginning with the books of Moses, beginning with the prophets, he's going through piece by piece. Here I am here. Here I was there. All of this going on. He didn't say, because you experienced my presence, now you know me. He went straight to Scripture. He could have done anything miraculous. He could have, I don't know, picked up a tree with one hand. I don't know, whatever. Something normal men can't do. He could have done that. He could have... Uh, 
done whatever. He could have taken a blonde guy and made him a brunette. Who knows? I mean, whatever. He could have done something supernatural, but he didn't. He chose not to. Why did he choose not to? This is showing us something. Is that truth is found in Scripture. He went back through the Scriptures and showed them who he was. But how did they miss it? Why did they not see it to begin with? It's because the writings of the Old Testament are what we call a mosaic. A mosaic is something that's got many different pieces put together that create a larger image. There's, there's sometimes I've seen them. We did, we, when I was in high school, I wasn't an artist. I can't draw stick figures. But we had people. What they do is they just make a bunch of dots. And while they're making the dots, it looks like nothing. But when they complete it, it creates this picture. In fact, you can kind of see it. That is a mosaic. It's kind of zoomed in a little bit, so it's tough to read. But here we've got what looks like a pile of trash. Would you agree? That's because it is a pile of trash. This is not an illusion. It is a pile of trash. That is a dead bird, and you see a roll of toilet paper and, and whatnot. Doesn't look like much. Go to the next one. But when you shine a light on it, it creates an image. Now, would you have ever, from that pile of trash, guessed that that's what it was going to look like? Absolutely not. Go ahead and go to one more. Here you see a bunch of sticks and metal and all this stuff put together. What's it look like? Someone's iron pile. They need to get up to the scrapyard. But when you shine the light on it, that's exactly what Jesus did. He's shown a light inside of the Scriptures to show them exactly where He was. To show them exactly who He was. You see, we have the benefit of what we call sight. We go back and look at something. You ever heard the term hindsight's 2020? Boy, if I knew then what I know now, I'd have done something different. Right? You know, and that's what we have. We know the beginning from the end as far as Scripture is concerned, so we can go back and look at it and see what happened. And we can see it. It's obvious to us. It wasn't them. In John chapter 5, and this is where we're going to end. John chapter 5, starting in verse 31, is Jesus talking again. He's talking to the Israelites. He's telling them about who He is. It says, If I bear witness of Myself, My witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of Me, and I know that the witness which He witnesses of Me is true. Who's He talking about? He's talking about the Father. He said, I'm not just saying this. He's confirmed it. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me. That the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have His Word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. But you are not willing to come to Me, that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? 
Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They're in the same boat that we're in today. You see, they're, 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 the words of Moses is how they thought eternal life came. But they were missing what the words of Moses were about and who the words of Moses were about. In other words, everything pointed to Christ, the coming Messiah, everything. The truth is, is that in the Old Testament, Jesus is on every page. You can't flip a page without seeing Jesus in it, which is what we're going to do over the next several weeks. And it's going to be a lot of fun. But he's telling him, the one who accuses you is Moses. Because of why? The law. All of the stuff that was going on. This is accusing you and making you wrong, but you think in it you're going to find salvation. It's not the words of Moses that find salvation. It's not the written word of God that we have salvation through. The written word of God tells us how to find it. We have salvation only through Christ. And this is what they're missing. But you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The whole Scriptures testify of Christ. It is so important that we understand. It is so important that we know that we are not just New Testament people. Right? We have a new covenant that's founded on better promises. Absolutely. And we get a gleaning and understanding of that from the New Testament. But the New Testament is a result of all the old covenants that took place and all the people that were there and all the things that were written down for our benefit so that we can understand. And when you understand that, it will change your understanding of why we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Because we'll begin to say, man, look at what happened. Look how He orchestrated this. Look how He did it. Look what all these people had to suffer for the Messiah to come and all we do is sit around and, and open presents and drink eggnog and talk about how pretty the tree is. No, it's the birth of the Messiah. is huge. It's a big deal. And we are going to study and understand that. Okay? And it's going to be fun. I, I don't miss a Sunday, please. I'm telling you, it is going to be good. It will open your eyes to Scripture like you've never said. Now, we're going to pray here in a minute. But I want to share a testimony with you guys about the power of God. Okay? I'll give, I talked a little bit about that friend of ours that we just met with, okay? And we went down there, and it was a nearly a four-hour conversation till almost 2 o'clock in the morning, the first night we were there. And just seeing the Holy Spirit just touch your heart. Because sometimes you need encouragement, and sometimes you're so wrapped up with people that don't know what to say or how to say and are walking on eggshells after a tragedy happens that they can't help you, which is where we came in because I'm pretty blunt. You know, that's just kind of me. But... Last week, week before last, a good friend of mine, um, it was just a rough week for him because I went to uh, meet up with him real quick, and, and right before I got there, his wife was in a car accident. And there were five ambulances and one person life flight and not her. She just had whiplash. She was sore, but okay. You know, and, and this person is a believer, um, not the strongest of believers, but he, he is a born-again believer. Um, the next day, I get a phone call that his mom is in the hospital in Lincoln. And they don't know if she's going to make it. It was out of the blue. Sunday morning, she was at a kid's birthday party. Tuesday, 
she has a 5% chance of making it. She had blood poisoning. It was bad. He was scared, scared for the family. I mean, his dad hasn't cooked a meal in 40 years. He's like, he'll starve to death. I don't know what, what he's going to do. They work on a farm. They live out in the middle of nowhere. And so I said, you know what? We're going to pray. And I said, and we're going to believe God for what God promised. That's what we're going to do. And so the doctor said, okay, you know, they, they were trying to take care of it medicinally and doing whatever they can. She's unconscious. She's not uh, going on. This is right before Thanksgiving. And it got worse. They went from originally, it was like she's got about a 25% chance. The next day it was 5% chance. And that evening they said, you guys need to be prepared that if we don't see any improvement by tomorrow morning, what you want to do. And so, of course, he's calling me every day and giving me updates and stuff. And I said, we're just going to believe God, and we're going to trust God, and we pray. And so that's what we did. And the next morning, there was a slight improvement. Now, I don't know what slight looks like, but maybe they elevated it to 6%. It was pretty slight, and they held off. And um, I think it was Friday, she woke up. And she'll be home next week. And praise God for that, but here's the interesting part. She told him that she believed she went to hell in that process. And she promised God that if you just get me through this, if you let me live, I'll be a better person. You see, this friend of mine grew up in the Methodist church where he grew up. And not all Methodist churches are bad. There are lots of good Methodist churches, so I'm not coming down on them. But he grew up and he went to that church every single Sunday. And it wasn't until he moved to Omaha that a friend of his invited to his church for the first time he'd ever heard of salvation, ever, which made him a little upset. So he went back to his pastor back in his hometown, and he said, why did you never tell me this? And the pastor responds, well, I assumed you knew. You know what happens when you assume stuff, right? You're usually wrong. We'll just leave it at that. But it's amazing to see the power of God work. And the reason I'm sharing this testimony with you is I want to encourage you. It's because believers lay hands on the sick and they will recover. The results are not our problem. They're God's problems. Our part to play in is that we believe, we pray, we stand on the promises of God, we stand in faith with God. There's nothing special about this lady other than she has no relationship with Christ and hopefully next week when she gets home, I get to sit down and have that conversation with her and explain to her that I don't care how good you are, that ain't going to do it. We have to be people of the Lord. If we believe with the Bible like we say we do, we've got to start acting like it. Which requires that when we hear someone's ill and sick, that we're going to pray for them. And again, the result is not up to you. The results are on God. Does God. Do we believe what God's going to say when we pray for people? Do we have faith strong enough to believe that God is going to do what He said? And part of that is as you're going to see as we go through these next several weeks that your faith will grow because you're going to see God in a way that you've never seen Him. God's good, amen? We believe God, we stand with God, we stand for God, and we do exactly what He tells us to do. We have got to be a church of world changers. We've got to be a church that is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will boldly proclaim it every chance we get, everywhere we go, and that we will do the things that Jesus said, you go and do greater things than I have done. We will walk up to some place and see a crippled man sitting there and say, hey, get up. Because we're not ashamed and we're not afraid of it. We're going to be a people that not just talks the faith, we're going to walk that faith out. Amen?